Good evening. You're listening to Three Moves Ahead, and I'm your host, Rob Zachney. Uh, together with the whole 3MA family uh, for you know for the first time ever, I think we got uh, our we're, we are at the home of our elite irregular panelist, Dr. Bruce Garrick. Hello, gamers. Oh God, that's more creepier in person than it is. And that is our producer, Michael Hermes, Hi. Uh, taking a break from his break and coming out to play some games with us. Hell yeah. And we also have 3MA founder, Troy Goodfellow. Hello, hello. And uh, so far on this trip, you know, when you think of Bruce Garrick, you think of hardcore war games. You think of heavily themed historical tabletop gaming. So naturally, the first thing Bruce made us do was spend an entire day playing Reiner Knizia bidding games. Which has been a bit of a surprise. And Bruce, you want to take me through the thought process here a little bit? Mind you, I welcome the board game education that you always provide. Uh, I treasure the experience and your insights. But if memory serves, we go back to the very early days of Three Moves Ahead when it was Tom Chick and Troy and Julian Murdoch and you. I seem to recall that you did not seem to have the warmest regard for Reiner Knizia. Or you seem to be somewhat over his games. And yet, in the year of our Lord, 2019, you said, damn it, boys, we have to spend a whole day playing Kinesia games. Yeah, and, I, and I'm not sorry we did either. Um, yeah, so <clears throat> I think that there is, a, um, there is a unique pleasure that I get. I'm sure a lot of other people get it, but this is, a am saying, unique in the sense that of the things that I do, this is a thing that I, I find uh, sort of pushes buttons that don't get pushed other, in other ways. So that's teaching or showing people how certain games have expressed ideas or, or design concepts or how game design has evolved. Because, um, you know, we talk a lot about game design on this podcast, and I don't think that um, it ever hurts to go back and look at how really good designers because what whatever I think of Reiner Knizia's games and, and somehow his, sometimes his thin theming and things that other things I don't like about he's a brilliant game designer okay his, his game designs are you know borderline genius in many ways um, but I think it's important to we're gonna we're gonna play some other games we have still two full basically two full days of, of gaming left and uh, I want to play some games that do some very different things but to Give everybody, especially people who have not played games uh, like this before, the chance to look at the way these design ideas are expressed and then react to them. That's something I really enjoy in general about just about gaming is, is playing games with people and then talking about them and talking about what, how people react to them. And what, do you, what did you think of the way this game did this thing? Because we've played some games and we've had some very strong reactions to several of them. And I think that for understandable reasons... And uh, I don't think that, you know, th there are a couple games that you have played. Um, I showed um, Michael how to play uh, Lord of the Rings Confrontation, which, for, with which you're familiar. Um, but then we played Ra, which, with which Troy is familiar. And then we played Modern Art, which it, with which n nobody was familiar with that. And then we played Beowulf, nobody was familiar with that. And then we sat down with Tigris and Euphrates, and that I don't, Think I think Troy, you play, play you'd played that before. So Troy played it before, but it's still these are all Tigers and Euphrates was one of the 
was, I think, one of the first number one games on Board Game Geek, if memory serves. I should have looked that up, but um, but I'm pretty sure it was. And um, game design has really come a long way, yet in some ways it's best expressed by things that were done 20 years ago. So I love context and I love evolution and I love discussion and I love uh, analysis. And I think that all of that is made better by looking at things that are new and things that have been demonstrated to be good and some things that have been demonstrated to be, you know, maybe not so good. I would say one of the things that surprised me least yesterday was that Michael seemed to take to a lot of Kinesia designs like a duck to water. Um, and we had an early taste of that when we were playing Ra first thing in the morning. And Ra, I guess, is kind of what I think a lot of us would be thinking of when we think of like sort of classic Kinesia. It is, it is a lot of theme as decoration, but the theme has very, like, the theme has, to me at least, very little to do with the actual, like, text and mechanics of the games. It is a game about ancient Egypt, but mostly it is about optimizing uh, what you pull off this auction block that you, you steadily, that you steadily fill up. And uh, I sort of blundered drunkenly into a first-round victory. But then Michael woke up and joined us for a four-player game and uh, seemed to really start clicking with that fast. And I thought that was going to be, we were in for a long day of Michael dominating the Kinesia uh, terrain. Michael, you want to, like you said going into this weekend yeah. that you were you had some reservations that you tended to be a little bit less like experienced with tabletop games than the rest of us. You played fewer. Uh, so I'd be really interested to hear what you sort of like here you describe like kind of how raw works but also what you got from it so what i got from it was an appreciation for the extremes of the kinesia library right because mm -hmm. of the games that we played yesterday raw was by far i think the most well thought out elegant just the distillation of a really really good idea that led to very interesting choices because the most fun we had in a lot of those games is where there's these interesting choices where you can see there's there's nuance to them. They're not always the most black and white, easily arrived to decisions. But if you look at something like Beowulf, it was like, well, there's a bidding mechanic, but really I'm just trying to minimize my losses. Like mm -hmm. there's gonna be some ups, there's gonna be some downs. But the decisions in 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 Ra and I think modern art, which were the two things I liked the most, the game concepts were extremely simple. And in fact, that's the thing. So we played Lost Cities, uh, Lord of the Rings, Hobbit Stratego, Ra, Modern Art, and then um, Beowulf. And then Tigers and Euphrates. And then we also, uh, you, good point, you brought up Lost Cities. We played, so yeah. Michael, Michael's flight, I'm just going to preface this and I'll let Michael talk, but Michael's flight came in. Michael was the only person who was on time, by the way. Right. Uh, so just a credit to him. Uh, Michael showed up uh, before noon. Um, uh, yeah, which Rob's was entirely credit, credit to him. Yeah, but, which entirely is my doing. Yeah, you, know, you didn't you didn't show up on time. So I mean, that's that's a, that's a, you know that clearly. I mean, I I, I look uh, I look for people to take responsibility for their for their uh, for their defeats as well as their victories. So <clears throat> anyway, um, <clears throat> like the French in 1940. So what I'm saying is, uh, Michael showed up at 11. I uh, picked him up. We went out, came home, and then we had some time before Rob, who was delayed uh, by technical failure on his aircraft. 
uh, fortunately non-fatal technical failure. Um, he uh, he was going to be a few hours before we had to get him. So uh, Michael and I played um, Hava Stratego, uh, Lord of the Rings Confrontation, and uh, then Ma- um, uh, Lost, Lost Cities. Cities. Lost Cities. Uh, and uh, those, I think, were two also distillations of um, of concept, but uh, to very different effects. So I'll, I'll let Michael get back to what his experiences with these. Now, you've described Lord of the Rings, the confrontation. Lord of the Rings, colon, the confrontation. Mm-hmm. A complex two-player board game is what the box is. As one of the best two-player... Where did you rank that as far as a two-player game? I think it's the best two-player non-war game there is. Like, if, if I'm in, if there's a... If there's a, somebody says, hey, let's play a two-player game. Yeah. And I'm not a war gamer. I don't want any Panzer divisions. I don't want any uh, Spetsnaz Soviet uh, air mobile insertions. I don't want to roll any morale checks. Uh, I just want to play a two-player game. Then Lord of the Rings Competition, I think, is the best one. Well, what makes for good radio, and what I did was I I prepared a graphic, Mm -hmm. which illustrates where I landed on these. Because these are all games I've not played before. Mm -hmm. There he goes. But here we can see... He's got a graphic. It's a bar graph. It's a bar graph because you have individual things to do. It's not necessarily related to time. It's Mm -hmm. it's, it's by... So we've got Haber Stratego and Lost Cities, which we played first. And I I felt kind of middle of the road. Mm -hmm. The secret, I think, actually to Ra and both Haber Stratego was a general YOLO philosophy where you just kind of go for it with reckless abandon, whereas some might make some very well-informed decisions. You just just go. Yeah. Right. And those were good. So on the scale of zero to 12, which I'm calling the hermometer, <laughs> you've got these two, which are good. They were good games. I enjoyed them. So Hobbs Stratego. Hobbs Stratego. Lost, lost uh, Cities are, are they're about sixes. They're about sixes. I, I, in retrospect, I'd probably put Lost Cities a bit lower. Okay. It's still good. Ra comes in. That's a 12, in case it's not clear. This is my... My sheet. Yeah. In case you can't see it. In case you can't see it. Yeah. I don't this, know. If you can't see it, turn up your gamma. Raw peak, peak, peak weekend. Okay. Of the games that we've played, that and modern art, I hope we play them again. Yeah. I, I hope we get another chance. Raw because of the clever game design, the, the bidding mechanics, the multi tiered um, approach to objectives. Brilliant. Loved it. Very happy Bruce exposed me to it. You expose yourself to me in a way that I can't thank you enough for. <laughs> Modern art, t- appreciate in a totally different way because the bidding mechanic was fun, right? So we, and we could describe all these games, I think, in, in a little bit to say what exactly we're doing because I'm sure not everybody knows all of these. But the fun of the modern art was just the goofiness that came out of the situations, right? Where we're describing these pieces to try and fluff, fluff up their, their non we try realistic to build the worth. Theme. You build the theme. Rob had some great obscene painting names, which I will not put on the show or edit out if you decide to put it in. Must okay, was one of my better efforts. It, it brought the table to a halt. Um, but it was just a lot of fun. Like, Ra was, Ra was fun in the sense that it was a good game, and everybody, I think, at the table could say, could recognize that the fun was, wow, this is just a brilliant game. And modern art is clever and good, but the fun came from the goofy sort of situations and the little narratives we had built up about these artists. Mm, I might disagree violently. As we try to sell it. Well, that's cool. And then, now you can see that the chart here, podcast listeners, has a zero at the bottom. And then breaking through below zero 
is Beowulf, the, the, the story of, what is it? Beowulf the legend. If you had, not in a million years, if you had told me that the person who designed Ra, the, the four games that we had played before, right? Ra and especially Modern Art had also done that, I would not, n- nowhere would I have guessed that that is the same person because it seems to be such a polar opposite from the ethos or the design aesthetic from the first couple. Am I, and it seems, and, and having come into this fresh, it seems like that is not a, a unique opinion. Yeah, Beowulf didn't, didn't, uh, didn't go so well. Um, that's one of the reasons that I, uh, I brought it out. And I thought, once again, I really am very interested in game design, game evolution, game history. And I think it's important to say, hey, there's this guy, Reiner Knizia. He designed some great games. Check this out. Check this out. Check this out. Oh, here's this game about Beowulf. Check this out. And then see your sort of reaction of, wait, I'm doing this. This is, I, and then you're, you're sort of, I felt everybody's progressive disengagement from really thinking seriously about the game. Uh, I mean, you were thinking about it, but, I, but there, there was no, when we were, playing raw everybody was really tuned in to what they were going to do and what they're going to bid and what somebody else was going to do and with beowulf everybody's like okay yeah right i'm going to flip those cards i'm going to do this i'm going to whatever um and that's the same designer and it's the same mechanic it's a bidding mechanic and he decided he was going well, to could be, could be fair to beowulf i don't have some on raw i mean i don't like beowulf either but it was also like the third game after three very long games mm-hmm. Uh, so it may have been some exhaustion, but one reason we might have not been as into the theme and the setting, besides the fact that it's a really poor translation of the theme and the setting, is that it was a little bit of exhaustion, I think, mm-hmm. a little bit of magic exhaustion. Yeah, I mean, and the room was the room was 20 degrees warmer than it had been uh, in the morning. But I think, first of all, it began to dawn on me early on that what we had here was a classic Bruce Garrick, uh, like, ringer mm-hmm. situation. And I have a question about that. Yeah. What, this, this house is beautiful. I assume you would entertain people. You would bring them over for things. Maybe not board games. Let's say it's food. Mm-hmm. And you were to serve them a lovely, you know, a, a nice pate. Mm-hmm. You have some, some beautiful s- steak, something. And then at the end, you, do you put in like a Oscar Mayer wiener cut up into little slices? Just as like a way to say, hey, now you can see how good the, how rest good the rest was. of it was because yeah. you've had... You know, pigs in a blanket is it? No, I, I think, but I think there's something to Bruce's. Like, there's this critique that sometimes there's hand wringing about score inflation, like video game reviews, right? Yeah. Like, but I think where there's a grain of truth to that is like when you and I, like, certainly when you guys were reviewing games for like Computer Gaming World and CGM, people reviewed everything. Like, just about any game that came out got a review. Early in my career, that was largely the case. I was reviewing a lot of stuff from lots of different price points. But the point was, there's an era where to be a working critic, you encountered a lot of a lot of crap. And that kind of, I think, probably helped you have a perspective and like have sort of a seeing things misfire well, helps you understand. Whereas why now it's impossible. Work. It's impossible yeah. to play everything. So only the better games are going to get uh, a review. And you'll see some of that, I think, in, in there we're in like peak board game, right? That's kind of the term now. There's too many board games for people to play, let alone experience. Um, I want to say my piece about Raw, because I, I'm, it's, 
Bruce taught me raw many, many years ago. We played it online, Brettspielwelt. Uh, if that is still a thing, it was an online uh, service, and uh, we'd play raw with, we'd find a third person, and we'd jump in. He's described as the best three-person game. Uh, I played really well with four. Um, and I want to talk a bit about the way we, each of the games had bidding to some extent. Tigers, yeah. Tigers and Euphrates is kind of the least. It's really a placement game more than a bidding game. You have you place uh, tiles to win combats, but you're not really bidding for yeah, stuff. Yeah, there's no bidding. It's, not, it's, it's the only reason. It's any, pseudo worker placement. Right. It's, 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 it's a placement game or a tile placement game. Um, but the other three games have bidding, but Raw is the one with perfect transparency. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was some in modern art, you hide how much cash you have. In Beowulf, your hand is hidden. Raw is perfectly transparent. You know which the value of the bidding tiles every player has. Their hand, what they're going for, is entirely exposed. And I think that complete access to information works really well in a bidding game, especially a simple bidding game uh, like Raw, because there's a point when we were playing, we were going, I think it was, a, it was the second game we played, and there was a great wealth of monument tiles to be bid on, and they would have probably won me the game. Uh, Bruce didn't really need, wouldn't have gotten a whole lot out of winning that bid, but he could have stopped me. Um, unless I've been playing, following my hand all the way through, and there are a lot of tiles to pick up, it's impossible to count really how many monument tiles somebody's got unless they're out in the open. So he wins that bid, and I think, and I end up losing that game. Um, and I think the fact that transparency works really well in a bidding game, and I'm, so the question is. I mean, modern art also works with a kind of hidden, but only the wealth is hidden. Everything else, you see what cards everyone else is collecting. No, but the cards in your hand are hidden, and that very yes. much informs right. what you do. Right. You don't know what other paintings are coming out, what the options are. So there's there's open bidding, there's open cards, and there's hidden cards in some games. So it's interesting to see the same mechanic, bids, in two very, very different ways. Uh, and the games play out in very different ways because of that um, modern art. Where it's a game where you bid on the people auction uh, modern art paintings, and the more of a certain type of artist who sells, the more that painting is going to be worth for that round. But that might change in future rounds. Um, so having access to that kind of information or not access to that kind of information really changes your strategy and changes your approach to the game and changes how you think about it. Um, I don't think I clicked with modern art as well as uh, Michael did, or even as maybe as well as Rob did. I did like it. I think it's like I, I need to play again to really understand and really get into. Because uh, I think I, I was from the third round. Oh, now I understand. Now I know. Now I'm getting how the counting works. But raw is just this piece of just beautiful, brilliant. Until the theme really doesn't matter. This could be. It could be. You could have a Star Wars raw, and you're bidding for Jar Jar's. I would play and, that. And you know, you collect Death Star parts. And you have Jar Jars and Jedis, and it wouldn't change the game whatsoever. And it might sell even more. Um, but maybe not, because the theme is just so ridiculous and t- t- tacked on. But I can see why uh, Michael responded to it so quickly, because it is it's so easy to learn. And I think so many board games now take, I mean, Tigris and Euphrates is not a hard game to learn, but compare how long it took. Uh, Bruce to explain those rules in a very simple tile placement game compared to Raw, which Michael could just watch and he understood. That's basically what happened. We were playing a three-player. That's part of it. I came in at the tail end of your three-player game, so I read the rules and watched you play, so by the time 
Yeah, you're I jumped right. in. And, I kind and, of already can, knew it. And you it. can fit the rules like on a card, uh, right. on the board. I mean, the rules are right there, the counting yeah. rules. And those sort of very simple, very deep, interactive games, um, because also with bidding games, there's a question of how much is interactive between people. Like Beowulf, there wasn't really much interaction between us beyond, you know, oh, I'm playing like six swords and you're playing eight swords compared to... Uh, modern art, where I have to think about like, what cards does he have, how many cards are already out, what is this going to be worth, how much money has he taken, and Raw, where we're looking at each other's decks all the time. So you're bidding with information about the other people. Beowulf, it really didn't matter all that much, I felt. So you were bidding against a ghost, or just playing cards out of a hand. So I think that's another reason why I kind of bounced off of that, because it was not quite solitaire, but also not quite multiplayer. So there's a couple things that I think raw and um, modern art are really interesting comparisons because I think in some ways they're they're diametric op- like opposites mm-hmm. where raw is to the point of that perfect transparency to a degree raw is such a transparent transparent and like perfectly engineered machine that when you're playing it well you also begin to feel like you are a part of that machine, right? You're just sort of making these consistent valuations. So the thing to know about Ra is that um, there are three rounds, and people are passing a bag of tiles around. There was a lot of tile passing in this uh, yeah, yesterday. A in lot. In general, yes. A lot. Like, uh, Multiple I think, games. I think a good upgrade for like a game room would maybe be like a little... like. Like a little, uh, like, like uh, what's this, around, uh, Lazy Susan? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but, so every every time the round passes to somebody, they reach into a bag, they pull out a tile, and it can have a monument on it, it can have uh, something that implies, like, the civilization of Egypt, uh, it can have a picture of the Nile, and all these things score differently. Many can score with extra value if you accumulate them in certain types of sets. Uh, others, you are very severely penalized for not having any of. Like, you need to have some kind of civilization or you lose five points at the end of the turn. But here's the catch. You need three different civilization tiles to have that be worth anything. So is it worth pursuing that? It's a lot of points if you get it. But if you keep passing on that and thinking, well, I'll get a sieve tile at some point, it could very easily be that you don't, and then you've just eaten a five-point hit for no good reason. And that's kind of the way Ra is working. But each time the round passes, there's a chance that somebody's going to draw a raw tile, and that is going to, first, it's going to mandate people start bidding. And second... Uh, once the top bar on the board fills up with different raw tiles, and there's like eight spots, uh, once you've had eight raw tiles appear, the round is over, and that last bid doesn't occur. So like you don't, you don't, you don't do the auction. The final part part of this puzzle is you are using these bidding chits that go up to I think fourteen. Uh, uh, there's thir- thirteen in the thirteen in the three. Three. There's the, the and, more in the in the yeah. So there's three and four. It's thirteen. Sixteen and five player. Yeah. And these chits, they're distributed, but you, so what you don't have, it's not like you have coins. What you have is you have your 14 chit, you have your eight chit, and you have your two chit. And you look and you see what other people have available to bid. And so there's this like psychology of it where 
I am going to try to make it force somebody to use their middle token. I'm going to make a bid here with something on I don't want it, but I think this other person needs it. And so I want them to burn one of their more powerful tokens to, to acquire it. But if that backfires on me, I just bought something I don't want. And you see this pass around. And so you're constantly calculating both what you need, but also what the it, it really renders transparent what the likely bidding strategies are going to be for every other player at the board. And this is something that a lot of other games that use auction mechanics, you, you don't know. You, like, you don't know how people are going to evaluate it because you don't know what the game's actual economy is. But also, I think more importantly, a lot of times auctions are almost infinitely granular. If you're dealing in increments of one, two, people can always say, and this is modern art, I'm going to bid five. Well, I'll bid six. In Raw, it's I bid two, action passes to Michael. He can bid eight or he can bid 14, but he can't bid three. And so that's kind of, that's kind of the bind that, that everyone is in, but you can, you can sort of try to guess about what their logic is going to be. And I think that made it really satisfying to play because it felt like sometimes with your games it feels like the game just happens and then there's a scoring phase at the end yeah. and it's like here was the game and raw at every point it felt very much like um the fucking card game casino royale where i'm looking at each other and like i pass I bid. Action to you, Mr. Bond. Ooh, he passed. Oh, there was a lot of thinking. There was a lot of pausing on people's turns as they looked, yeah. as they looked at the cards, as they decided whether they wanted to bid or not. Um, I mean, you mentioned the tiles. I mean, when you bid, if he, if say Michael bids his eight, that then goes in the center of the board, and he takes out whatever the winning bid was for right. the last time. Um, so you could end up bidding eight, but getting back say a three. And that's what you have in the, your heart, your hand for the next round. So you have to do this kind of planning ahead for, well, okay, if it's in the third round, then I don't want to have the lowest number, the lowest value chits, or have a crappy bid right. if I need another monument coming up. In a word, the last winning bid is part of the auction block. Yeah. Is always yes. part of the auction block. So you can end up in a situation where just because of the way you played the turn, you ended up exchanging a lot of high-value bidding tokens for the lowest, exactly. which means you are basically in a bind now where you can't outspend anybody. You're probably, and I think this was how our first game ended, I think we literally had a situation where uh, either me or Troy was basically trying to get the river card, as it were, and just kept drawing stuff from the, uh, from the bag, knowing that the game could end at any moment, but that was the only play left because, you, you know... The bidding had closed. You, you didn't have the, and, and the chance to really win it. And that was a really close game. You ended up beating Bruce by one point, yeah. and I was only four points behind. And it was a really, really tight game. And you can't you can do some of the scoring in your head, uh, but you know who's the who's the calculator in this room? Not me. Um, Bruce. No, yeah. I don't think I am. But <laughs> I, so, I, I will. But I, I will say that um, 
uh, we did also not spend a lot of time. I think people, everybody was very, very conscious of, about keeping the game going and not sitting there doing super analysis. Probably. Yeah, but I don't know, like really, there was some actual pausing and thinking. There was, I mean, we weren't, you know, wasting time because we're friends and this isn't chess. Yeah. Uh, I also, yeah, but, but also, like, I just don't trust that the guy who plays Zactronics games right and left <laughs> wasn't, like, quietly just, like, the spindles of tape weren't, like, recording the action and... The, the later in the day it got, the less likely that was going to be yeah. happening. But I think that that is such an interesting contrast to what is happening in modern art where so a lot of like trading games, auction games, they rely on this idea of the market is being is very fixed. And so like right there on the board of raw, you have the valuation of everything. Like what you know, what you get, you know exactly what's going to be worth. And that's in every calculation. What is fascinating to me and this is what I loved about modern art. It's an auction game but it's a markets game. And, and I mean that in like sort of the microeconomic sense of these things, like very little in that game has a fixed value. They, like the market is created by the action on the table. Things only have value if they are perceived to have value. Which is why I think it's actually Reiner Knizia's best themed game. Because okay. it really... Why don't you it, describe it? Well, so, so modern art is a series of rounds in which so players are dealt cards which represent paintings and these paintings are then auctioned off in sequence one at a time uh sometimes two at a time but that's a different role to explain um players just go around the table and they they have a hand of cards and that's basically what they represent the, the patients uh patients pictures that they own the paintings that they own and uh they'll pull one up for auction and the table has a chance to auction, uh, to bid on them. There are different types of auctions. There's a sealed auction, which is basically one-time secret auction. There's a, um, uh, a once-around-the-table auction. There's an open auction, which is kind of like the classic auctioneer. Hey, bada, bada, whatever, you know, do I see 5, do I see 10, do I see 15? Um, and then there's a fixed-price auction where the auctioneer can say, you know, this cost, this is going to cost 50000 And then you go around the table, and the first person uh, to the uh, dealer to the auctioneer's left has a chance to buy it for 50 then the next person does the next person does if nobody buys it then the auctioneer has to buy it himself for that price and this is a very nice way of sort of giving a, a variety to the types of auctions so the auctions are always uh, a little different i think it would be i think the game would be a little might be much more tedious if it was the same auction every single time i think that's a really a really smart uh move but the game basically the, the 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 paintings have no value when you start. They have none. And that's the thing that that's the reason that I think everybody needs to play modern art twice. Or I think because I think you don't really get what's going on until at least a couple rounds have gone. And then you're like, oh wait, I get it. I want to get somebody to buy something from me for a lot of money and then not sell any more paintings by that person so that the person who bought it has a worthless thing. Meanwhile, I want to make sure that a bunch of things that I bought get auctioned off because the way that the final scoring goes is that the artist with the most paintings having being auctioned is has the most valuable paintings and every painting will be worth $30,000. The second most popular popular artist is 20,000, the third most popular is 10 and the other two so there are five artists in the game that can be auctioned but the two least popular artists their paintings will be worth nothing. And so 
uh, you don't want to own paintings that are not going to be worth anything. So if you buy something, then you're going to try want to try to auction off further paintings by that same artist to sort of generate a buzz about that artist, right? And it's it's a I think it's beautifully themed because it really captures the essence of what the art market is like and how hot artists become uh, coveted and therefore their value goes up, not due to aesthetics necessarily, but due to the market's perception of something being valuable. And that's exactly what the market is. And then each each uh, each round, uh, if an artist is, is uh, in the top three for two consecutive rounds, then they actually get the value of the previous valuation. So if you were first on round one, or this artist was the most popular in round one, but only third most popular in round two, but still, you know, finished in the money, right? Win, plays, show kind of thing. 30000 for round one, 10000 for round two. In round two, those paintings are worth $40,000 because the patient, the, the, I keep saying patient, I guess it's a physician uh, uh, occupational hazard. The painter's uh, paintings have been shown to have legs, right? They have long-lasting value. So that uh, painter's um, uh, paintings will be worth more if they fall out of favor, then they come back, they'll still get the, uh, the um, uh, valuation of uh, the, the previous... Um, uh, previous, the previous, previous rounds, if previous, they come back. So if if they, they don't come back, they finish out of the money, then they're still worth nothing, no matter what happened in previous rounds. Right. But if they come back, then, oh, it's a vintage classic that's coming back, so they're worth the previous 40000 and the next ten or what have but, you. But that was part of the fun, is waxing yeah. poetic on how... Uh, crypto may have fallen out of favor, but he's back with a vengeance with his newest piece that I think you're all going to love. <laughs> and then you put it down and then try to convince them to buy it for X thousand dollars. There's a role-playing aspect. Right. And the, the whole... Uh, card, it's a card management game as much as is a bidding game. Mm-hmm. It That's is, true. Uh, because you have to, you're, you start with eight cards and you're dealt a few more and you've dealt a few more in the third round, fourth round, you, you just stop with what you've got in your hand. And it's paying attention to what is out there. What is there? Each deck of painters has a different different number of cards available. Um, some in if there's a tie in valuation, there's a ranking system over which artists are preferred. So there's all the other strategy going into it. Which you'll know who tie, who breaks ties. So you can yeah. see the see the board position, but you don't know who's holding what. Right. Uh, so there is this uh, whole system of yeah. I mean, do I. Do I want to, because an artist was worth, say, 30000 in the previous round, do I want to keep bumping that up, or do I want to drive them down, depending on what's in my hand, um, and depending what I anticipate is already out there, depending on availability in the decks? So there is this calculation, and the, the anticipated possible value of a painting changes from round to round. Uh, I guess maximum a painting could be worth would be $120,000 if they're finished at the top, uh, of every single round, uh, which is very, very unlikely and quite impossible. But you can find yourself trying to, okay, is this going to be worth, is it worth bidding, you know, 50000 in round two, hoping I can keep it, this artist strong based on what's in my hand for the next two rounds, uh, which is quite a gamble. Uh, but it's something that a risk taker might want to make. I think something else, Bruce, you mentioned that and this was offhand, so I don't want to like hold you to this because I'm going to disagree with it. You said that one of the things this game does, it also has, what is it, four different types of auction. There's the open auction. Uh, there is the goes once around the table. There is the sealed auction where everyone reveals what their bid is and the high bid wins. Uh, 
well, hand turned it's up. It's in the rules. So the, the rules say that you're supposed to hold your hold your uh, money chips in a closed fist and everyone has to open them simultaneously. But the rules actually state that you shouldn't just open your fist. You should turn it up so that when you open it, the chips don't fall onto the table. It, that's, that's in the rules. So if you open without turning your hand up, you have broken the rules. Now, given how messy the table got with chips, I actually understand that rule better now. But... Um, and then, of course, you can do a fixed price auction where you just set a price, and if nobody takes it, you have to buy the painting at the price you listed. And there's but, actually the fi- the fifth auction, which is a double auction, but it just it, it's it's two paintings. Yeah. Some paintings are doubled, but then it, it uses utilizes one of the previous uh, four. And I and I think that model does serve a couple really practical effects. It's it's variety, which is good. It speeds play. Yeah. If every if every auction where people one upping each other in one thousand increments, yeah. the game would take forever and everyone hate it. It's a lot more fun to just have the reveal moment and like, okay, now we all we all took a minute and a half to think about our bid, and now we're gonna reveal it and we're done. Sure. But I think the other part of it is this is where like the weird psychology of the game, like it's these different group dynamics where you will see things like. Uh, People convince themselves once the bidding action begins to heat up a little bit, people begin convincing themselves that other actors at the table are acting on knowledge based on their own hand. But it might be that nobody actually knows very much about the game state at this point. And everyone's just presuming, well, okay, he bid that high, which means he's probably going to also dump a couple of these cards on the table and like try to close out. Uh, and all of that might be completely false. Nevertheless, once people start bidding each other up, that dynamic takes takes flight, whereas things like the uh, you know the fixed price auction that is basically at that point you just have to gamble that you've you've figured out how the table is going to value this thing and uh, like one thing that happened to me yesterday was I was sitting on a couple cards by the artist Yoko and no yokos in that round hit the table like it wasn't there we were we'd done a few auctions there were no yoko cards out and i was kind of worried because by that we were far enough into the round that the end of the round was within view like once once the fifth work by an artist hits the round is over and so to a degree i was putting a new artist out there and they weren't in the running to be in the top 3 finishers so to a degree like maybe there were maybe they had no value so what I decided, what I ended up doing was I did a double auction of two Yokos, which would have immediately at least put Yoko on the map in terms of two cards out. Now that is now that is a contender for being in that top three at the end. And then I did the open auction. And it started with a couple insultingly low bids. And then one time around the table, everyone started to realize, like, wait, wait hold on. Hold on, wait a second. Maybe this isn't worth two, three thousand. Maybe it's worth ten thousand. No, maybe it's worth twenty-five thousand. Well, he bid ten thousand. I that I know what's going on here. I'm going to bid twenty. No, he. Oh, yeah. I see what he's doing. Twenty-five. Yes, there's a very much a. I mean, au- I think auction gr- games are great for a group dynamic because everybody you have to engage and people are like, ooh. He bid twenty. I know. He, oh, I bet you he's got two more in his hand. He's gonna. Oh, he's gonna make out like a bandit. I got to do this right now. Boom. But then, <clears throat> of course, in modern art, if somebody pays a lot for something out of your hand that you have more, uh, you have more cards of, you don't want them to reap the benefits. So now right. you're gonna back off and not auction those other things, right? So there's just. It's. I think. I think the game really, like I said, it's really well themed because it just it captures this idea of 
people collecting art that has no fixed value and it's all based on the perception of the people that are buying it and what they are willing to pay and what you think they're willing to pay because that game is two different things that game is the auctioneer and the and the collector right i mean you're you're collecting but you're auctioning i mean you you can make a fair amount of money just pumping the market and selling things that are obviously going to be uh, popular, what you don't want to do is you don't want to let those things be, stay popular because then you just sold it to somebody who's going to recoup their cost. You don't want people to recoup the cost of their of right. their uh, investment. The this and I, this ties to something about Tigris and Euphrates that we'll talk about later. But modern art, I think, is an example of a game where you need to not get wedded to what your earlier objective was. There is a moment where you were like advocating for I must. I must move as much crypto as possible. Uh, I need people to buy crypto. Crypto is hot right now because I am going to end this because I, I own three crypto that I'm going to liquidate at the end of this round. And so crypto is, is the shit. And that carries over to the next turn where crypto remains a really valuable artist. But now I've only got one crypto in my hand. I ain't going to get much. That's not going to do much for me probably right. so what i at that point the thing i need to be and this is the thing i was i was i was bad at uh was unloading that previous objective from my mind and just saying like i actually want to sell crypto and then i don't care if crypto sells and i don't care if there's another crypto that sells for the rest of the game i don't give a shit and that's the thing i'm bad at where i still i'm like uh, still, I think I still want to be in the crypto business. And, I, and basically at that point, I'm bidding against myself. I'm sort of eating my own margins. Where what I should be doing is like, here's an artist that hasn't done shit all game, but I've got four of their fucking paintings in my hand. I can push, uh, like I can basically close this round out right. if I just mar- push these right. all to market. Yep. And I'll be the one selling them. And I can make sure that they get, like yep. if they finish first place, I'm the guy who sold all of it. I've done pretty well, but right. it means what happened before has no relevance on your valuations for the next round. Again, yeah, you can't afford to be a patron of any particular artist because values change and you got to figure out, like, I remember the, <clears throat> the very first uh, thing I started collecting was, you know, Carl Gita. Carl Gita, which you have to say you have to that say, way. Yeah, there was a house rule that you have to, if you're auctioning by Carl Gita, you have to say Carl Gita. But um, I thought, oh, this is going to be great. I'm going to have all these uh, paintings by this artist, but then the board completely changed. And I think that some other like crypto came out and some other people. And then all of a sudden it's like, Oh, I don't care about this artist. Um, I need to get back in with the zeitgeist because the, the market's changing and the, the tastes are changing. We need, I need to make money, money, well, money. It, but it's almost not even the zeitgeist. It's, you're a guy who had an oversupply of an artist. Like it's it, like right. there's partly there's partly the market that's taking shape at the table. But one of the other things that's shaping that market is the fact that, you're kind of the shitty. You're the, you're the shitty gallery dealer who five minutes ago you're like Christian Peas for the dogs, just just <laughs> crap artist. I'm not going. Like, I'm not bidding on that trash. And then the new round comes in. You get three cards and they're all Christian P paintings. And now you're like, this is obviously the most important. Like, absolutely, we're in the what we're, a turnaround. Like, they yeah, made. just incredible work. And the the only thing that changed is that suddenly you had a surplus of this crap in your hand, and that is what's going to make this a hot artist. Is because now you are a motivated seller. Yeah, I mean, I, I think I think it's a great dynamic. I really enjoyed that. Now, I, I will say that uh, Michael came off his uh, his 
his uh, convincing win of Raw, and we played uh, we played a five player uh, with my friend Evan. And I think I think five player modern art, by the way, is the best. I think that you have to the more players you have, the more potential there is for dynamic. Well, there are five artists, so it tends to line up pretty well. Right. Right. Yeah. It's a, I mean, it's a three to five player game, but it really, it, I think it needs to be a five. I think four players is okay, but I think five players is ideal. But anyway, um, so um, Michael then uh, took his uh, auction skills to the to modern art, and I think he came in like six out of like, I think 300 points. It was, it, there, there are thousands of dollars. It was like 332,000. It was very, very, very close, but Evan squeaked. Yeah, Evan's quick pass, and that, and that I will say that a Evan had played it multiple times before, and Evan is the um, sort of my friend uh, Tom Chick, who uh, broadcasts as uh, a quarter to three and has a, a quarter to three podcast. You guys should check out, by the way. Um, Tom has a, a guy in his group uh, named Kyle, who is just the he, Tom always refers to Kyle like don't just just don't cooperate with Kyle, don't do anything Kyle says, uh, because he's a computational sort of uh, machine. And Evan is the computational machine of, of the Portland gamers that I play with. Like, you just can't, you don't let Evan have too much time to think because he's he's constantly processing things and he's got, he's, he's kind of too many steps ahead of you. And uh, so the fact that, that uh, Michael just came in a few behind uh, the computational machine who'd already played the game multiple times, um, I think uh, kind of showed the... The um, the fact that Michael just jumped right on the on the auction mechanic, and and I, I really liked those games. I felt I felt comfortable playing them. Whereas some of the others that we played later, I was just either too tired or had too many drinks imbibed. Yeah. But I just I just wasn't. I don't, I don't even want to co- like you guys can talk about Tigris and Euphrates. I have nothing to add. <laughs> I was so out of it by that right, point right. that I was really just there to like throw some tiles down. And- Here, here's a question for you though, because yeah. I'm just curious. Because in the last round of of modern art, mm-hmm. it appeared to me that you'd made a strategic shift, and I can't figure out if it was intent or just the way the the, the table dynamics worked out. You didn't buy anything. It you was- went into pure liquidation mode. Yeah. You did not buy a single painting in that last round. That was intent because I had a rough idea of the money that people had. And I knew I was sitting on large cash reserves. And since the only thing that matters at the end is your 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 bankroll, just like in real life, I didn't I didn't want to. I, I had a I I had a rough idea that I had a commanding cash lead. Yeah. Just wanted to hold it out and 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 maybe make a little on top of it. But no, that was intentional. Okay. Yeah. Because I was still basically playing the oh like look at like if I can guarantee that these last couple painters. And yep. they've they have so much accrued value from previous performance. They've been the top three all three rounds. If I can get a few of those, I'll be loaded. But I was spending way too much money. Like I was trick. running into bidding right. problems for the end of the game. Where like I was like, wait, how the hell's my stack this low? I can't even now. There's auctions happening where I can't even actually take part. Right. Yeah, I think that I think the the um, the fact that you have to be liquid in that game is super important and you you really have to start thinking about when am i you can't just say oh i gotta acquire all these valuable things because it might hamstring you from being able to do other stuff uh that you know as as opportunities arise you have to you have to be able to take advantage of them and 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 putting all your money into something early just expecting this huge appreciation i mean it's opportunity cost it's just like the market right it's like oh you're fully invested but here's this other investment opportunity, but you've got nothing to buy with. So 
Um, I, I love that game, and I, that's why there's a, <clears throat> the game that Reiner Knizia did prior, I think four years prior, uh, which I don't have. I've played, but I, um, it's, it's, I think it's, I think I'm going to call uh, High Society uh, Reiner Knizia's uh, beta test of, um, of modern art. Uh, it's a, you're just this is Bruce being very diplomatic, by the way. Last night when he was in his cups, uh, Bruce began ranting at the Portland forest around us. He was like, high society is nothing. It's nothing to modern <laughs> art. Uh, so Twitter mutuals who were telling us high society was good, uh, you're on notice, yeah. uh, Bruce. I don't like high society. I think that, I mean, I just think that it, modern art, it really is a case where I don't think there's any reason to play high society except that. Uh, you know, there's been a devastating earthquake and your copy of Modern Art fell into a chasm, but somehow uh, High Society, well, you were wearing your backpack and it was in your backpack. So now there are no other stores that are, because they've all been destroyed, but you guys want to play a Reiner Knizia, you know, bidding game. So fine, play High Society at that point. I mean, I, you, have my, you have my permission and dispensation. But other than that, I can't think of a reason. So... We're not going to go in chronological order because for me, there's a through line between modern art and Tigris and Euphrates, which, and this is what I was talking with Bruce a little bit about last night, is that Tigris and Euphrates, I think, is another game that relies on you having no investment in, yes, you do things on the board in this game, but nothing's really yours. It's just about whether you're getting, what are you getting points from at any given moment? And... Yet you still feel, and there's this there's this trick in the game where you build things and you feel a proprietary interest toward them, but the game doesn't actually work that way at all. And so the thing that I struggled with mightily in Tigers and Euphrates was again detaching the fact that, like, yes, I had a plan that I was executing a few minutes ago and I was building something. That no longer serves any end in terms of points I'm accruing. So now I just need to completely ignore the previous game state of the board and think about, well, what's there now? What's going to get me points right now? Yeah. Michael made a great comment. This, I, I love this. still remember this. We're playing. And, uh, you know, we'd all been making our little, little areas and kind of things. Uh, and I took one of my, because you have these, <clears throat> we have, you have these leaders and they go on various parts of the board. And part of the game is that you need to coexist with other, the whole point of, of a civilization, the civilizations will get bigger as multiple people are playing into them because you, as you, you have different um, colored leaders and if you play colored tiles into a civilization, you get that kind of a victory point. And um, so Michael had his own little area there. And I took one of my leaders and just kind of put it in his area. And Michael says, I'm not really sure why. I don't know any basis for it but I'm really angry at you right now. And it was, it was, a, it was a perfect example. That's exactly what the kind of, of thing that people feel about because you're like, hey, I'm putting my, I have my little guys here. Like this is my little civilization. And what Knizia really does well with this game is that he subverts that because you, <clears throat> you play two tiles every uh, turn. That's your, I mean, oh, you can do other things, but the maximum you can, so let's say the maximum you can play is two tiles per turn. So that means you can get maximum of two victory points per turn. However, if you have a, um, if you have a leader in some, somewhere else where there are other people and they're playing tiles, sometimes they'll play tiles where you, uh, where you're going to get victory points for their tiles. So it makes no sense for you to just build up your little area and get maximum of two victory points per turn. If you can go and put, guys in all sorts of other places and then um 
And then you can get other people's victory points when they're playing tiles. Because maybe they're going to play a tile for some reason that will give you a victory point, um, but it, it helps them. Also, you, um, if you, the, the main way, and at the end of the game, this is really kind of what happens, is you start becoming very aggressive. And you're trying to, there are these conflicts where your leader and, the, the, uh, and another leader will clash have clash of civilizations and you can get a lot of victory points that way but it really is hard to do that if all of your guys are in one place because then you have to build up all of these things separate together and then when one collapses you're going to have sort of your civilization will collapse whereas if you have them in different places you can run over other people um and still preserve your little area and then if other people attack, you might not even be involved. Whereas if, if it's all in one place, if you get attacked, you're going to, it's going to be you and you're going to get attacked. So I mean, it is a proprietary and territorial game. I mean, there is a sense of ownership, but the ownership isn't all together. Like all four of your leaders aren't all in the same place. Right. You'll have, this is my training nexus and I will protect that. This is my trader's territory, but this is my priest's territory and it could be on the other side of the map overlapping with someone else's right. city i mean so you could have yeah. you so there can be like we could all four of us could have had leaders in the same area but you could not have we could not both have had a trader there or you both couldn't have had a king there or you both could have had a priest there there's only one job for one trader and to kick him out you've got to kick him out you've got to declare war internally or externally so there is there's not there isn't territoriality there isn't control because there is but it's a dispersed control, and eventually it does coalesce, but then it falls apart. Uh, as wars are won and lost, tiles come off the board, and then this map, this board-spanning empire, is now three different kingdoms. And that's where the real victory points are to be made, because every time you place a tile in a city where one of your representatives is located, yeah. if it's a matching color for that representative, you get a victory point of that color. But if you wipe out someone's traitor... The city that that trader was operating, so you connect two cities by like, oh, I built a farm that now connects these two cities. Each city had a trader. I had more trading tiles in it. Their trader is now outgunned. There is now, at this moment, the conflict can be decided. People can commit trading tiles they've been sitting on, and they can sort of commit it to uh, the, the, the conflict, the external conflict that just erupted, to see who's going to be the last trader standing. But... Whoever wins, loser's going to take all their stuff off the board, and the winner gets victory points for everything that came off the board. And so this is where Bruce started to really clean up. He kept winning those fights. And like so I'm sitting there getting, oh, here, I, got a, I got a red victory point. Oh, I got a blue victory point. Bruce wins one fight, and the stroke of a turn, yeah, yeah, he's game six. But these also, when the things get severed, that offers up new opportunities. Yes. Because now you have, okay, now this blue guy over here who was earning firm tiles from across the map, now he's not earning those. So I can put my blue person here and I can start winning on the farm. I can start collecting farm 50 points on this new separate kingdom. So the rise and the fall of the civilizations and the connected units opens up new opportunities, new chances. It's a very big map. Like My king was chased out of his kingdom, so he set up someplace else just so he could try to get... Because, yeah, one or two victory points isn't going to help you, but zero victory points helps you less. Yeah. So setting up somewhere and just getting something to try to build up somewhere until I realized, okay, now I should probably go where Michael's guy was yeah. first and force him out. So there is this, it's territorial, but it's not exclusive and 
sovereign. It's a very dynamic board position. Crucial thing here, by the way, the winner is the person, like you collect victory points in four colors, but the winner is the person with the highest number of victory points in their lowest numbered column. So like if you have the least amount of green, if, you, if the least amount of, of victory points you have is in the green category, but you still had like a dozen green victory points, that means you were weakest in green. But that might be better than everyone else was at the, the, than their weakest category, at which point you've won because you are like the most balanced and enduring Civ. And so this is the other thing. Is so many games skew, I think, toward the mid-maxer mentality. And this is very much a, you have an objective that lasts just long enough for you to bag a bunch of points. And then it doesn't matter. Like I, I got out early on, I, I got ahead on green very, very early. And I kind of got... Like, I was enjoying farming green victory points, but the problem was that didn't do shit for me. Like, the difference between having 20 and 50 green victory points is non-existent. It doesn't matter. Yeah, that's and that's a, that's really the... I mean, I not that it matters, but I, I won that game uh, pretty handily. handily. Yeah, yeah. And, 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 and that's only because I've played it multiple times, and I understand how to play the game. And this is really... That's, the only reason I'm bringing that up is to is to really illustrate how that is a game that you have to really play over and over and see how the relationships go because the thing that initial people that start playing that game always get sort of excited about attacking and putting things down and getting a lot of victory points like oh I'm getting oh I get more because because victory points have to beget victory points if you win a big battle against somebody in an external conflict let's say you know you had you know, six and they had four and you blew them up. Now you still have your six, but they're down to zero. So you can continue to win these battles. But the the, the genius design that Kinesia does here is that, yes, you could become the sort of like, you know, black cube, the, the, the black victory point steamroller, the red victory point steamroller, the, you know, and that'll do you no good because there's rapidly diminishing returns. If you have 40 blue victory points and one red victory point, then... You've lost. There's yeah, no, there's no, yeah. Your score is yeah. one. Well, your score is um, one. And he says, oh, you've built this great civilization. How many farms do you have? So you I have was, the best kings, best traders. Yeah. How many farms do so you I have? Spent the, yeah. I spent a good, there was a, a point in time where I was like, okay, I'm set up with these two colors are good. I got to forget about them. Like, I don't care what happens with those colors. I need to quickly switch to, I think there was one point where I was really low in green. So, okay, that's, I, I need to build up green because it doesn't matter what happens with those other colors. If my, if I have three greens, I think I had like 10 of each of the others. Like I, that, my score is three. So I need to do everything I can. And people don't quite see that until it's a little late. And there's also this uh, treasure mechanic where the, there's a wild card that you can, if you effectively move your uh, leaders and, and connect these, connect civilizations, it's, a, it's, a, it's an incentive to connect, to connect civilizations, um, that you get uh, these wild card victory points. And what inevitably people do is they get multiple ones and they put them all in their lowest thing, therefore boosting it. Um, so uh, it, that's a game that I don't think I have any particular skill in, but that it, you're at a real uh, advantage over new players. That, that The first time you play through that game with somebody who's played before, don't expect to win. And that's a game that used to be, that used to be how games were, right? That, oh, I'm learning this game. I'm going to play it. We didn't have, you know, peak board game. We had a certain number of games. 
yeah, we just we had all and people were just there was people posting on board game geek about strategies and things and you you expected you were going to play a game like 10 times. So, if somebody taught you how to play the game, that was the learning game. Everybody's like, "Okay, this is a learning game." Right? Now people are like expecting to sit down and say, "Okay, I want to win this game." It's like, "No, this is a learning game. I understand that I'm going to lose. I might lose the next game or the, and the next game after that, but then I'm really picking up the subtleties of the game and then five games in, I'm going to be really competitive to this guy that taught me." So, that's not really that popular anymore, but I really think Tigers and Euphrates is a, is a game that lends itself to really, uh, really careful repeat play. Um, and so I wanted to, once again, bring that as an example. And I want to just say one more thing, which is that I absolutely would serve people uh, Oscar Mayer, Wiener, uh, chopped up into little pieces if we were going to podcast about it. <laughs> because it's all about it discussion. makes a story i just want to point out that i probably owed victory points at the end of that game like i don't think there's a debt mechanic but if there was i was probably in the red yeah uh and then that never really clicked with you is there something you didn't quite understand no i was fucking tired and yeah. i had okay. been drinking it was just that. yeah we had had we had, we had were, i was we in had, it that was the, the i mean we started playing at i don't know what time in the morning and then we yeah. uh, we had we went out for brunch and then we came back and evan came with us and we played modern art and then evan left and we played um beowulf, beowulf and, and then we no i was just done i yeah my, I, I had no further cognitive capacity <laughs> for there was a point where you made a move because you just wanted to see like what would happen you were like i need to understand this game and you saw it and you sort of seemed to half understand but still didn't quite get it and then you were just done like i watched yeah. you just like okay fuck this yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah that's about and there was one or two moves i feel a little bad right just I just wanted to see what kind of chaos would happen but if I disconnected these but, two. But sometimes that worked out. That's how games used to be, where you do you wouldn't go on YouTube and watch ten different videos about it. Yeah. You would play the game and be like, "I wonder what happens if you do this," and then you'd say, "Oh, actually, that works out." Oh no, that's terrible. Okay, never do that again. Don't do learn. that. Don't do that. So it's a different era of gaming. I think to the point about like games being a little bit about like this idea where the first game should everyone should be competitive. I'm thinking back to a game that came up last night as we were talking uh, after we finished playing. Evan brought up Terraforming Mars, which is a game that I like a great deal. I had a lot of fun with it. Uh, but the first couple times I played it, I was really impressed with how um, there is. I forget what the 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 end game scoring. Uh, works out in such a way that there's a lot of convergence of scores toward the end. Like, like it was sort of surprising to me the degree to which like uh, hidden victory values would would sort of make the the game sort of come alive at the end. And I thought, well, that that maybe that's the secret sauce. Is it kind of obscures some information a little bit. And when I talked about this, people pushed back and they were like, actually, no, it's a game tuned so that. It tends to it tends to throw up photo finishes in like groups of roughly equal scale, um, and I do wonder if that's kind of a uh, what's the way to put this. Um, I do wonder if that is partially incentivized by the idea of everyone should like there is now a sort of ethos in board games or at least an expectation among a lot of people who play a lot of board games that the first game you should come away feeling like you you clicked you you did all right it's you were roughly competent at it whereas tyrus and euphrates seemed absolutely comfortable 
just letting you get run into the ground uh, from lack of comprehension and just get completely sharked by Bruce. Um, there was no, there was no catch up mechanic. Like once you started to fall behind, it was tough to get back in. Um, you know, as, as you sort of got chased out of parts of the board, there were extended periods where I was like, I don't know where I can hide these guys anymore. Cause wherever I go in a couple turns, someone's going to connect up a city. They basically control now and just eat me. Yeah. I, I, I don't, I mean, I, I don't think you're wrong. I just think that that's a particular type yeah. of game that, has fallen out of favor. I really, and I do see, like, just sitting here with you guys yesterday and watching, I mean, I really liked how engaged Michael got in Raw and how engaged Michael got in Modern Art. And when I'm having a bunch of people over, you know, I'm I'm very much sort of, I mean, I'll, sl- I'll slip in the freaking Beowulf because it's got to be done and people have to eat their vegetables. But uh, But I really want people to, enjoy what they're doing and they want to be like, oh yeah, I went to, I had a vacation. I freaking went to Bruce's for the weekend. God, that sucked. We play these games in our stand them. It's just, uh, next time ah, I'm freaking, I'm going to Vegas. So, um, so I like that, but I also feel that, so, so I should continue on that. I like that. And so I see the idea where you have a game where you set it up and everybody plays, everybody sits down, everybody has a good time and there's a good feeling, but I like game design enough that I really would rather that those people, I mean, I want everybody to have a good time, but I would really like if people had a good time just finding out about the game and then saying, you know, okay, I'm going to figure this out. And then it's the going, process. Yeah. And going away. I want them to have a good time, but I want them to earn it. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, but also, like, <laughs> I mean, honestly, but I've been, like, I spent. I've probably thought more about Tigris and Euphrates than the other games we played because, like, with modern art, I think I do sort of what I did, but better. I, like, yeah. I, I know what I do. With Tigris and Euphrates, I'm sitting here being like, oh, I do that completely differently because now I understand that, like, oh, like, the representation, the, the, the map isn't a geographic reality. It is a possibility space that can be modified. And what you should be thinking about is how can I change the shape of this map with moves rather than thinking about how can I take advantage of what's already there. But that is an understanding I came to late in that game. And so I think the second game experience would be very different in terms of dynamism though. And games with like wide, like wide possibility spaces and sort of imagining different, uh, different ways to sort of navigate their challenges. This, I think, is one of the reasons why I didn't, I really didn't like Beowulf. It, it actually, so Beowulf, I think, is, I think it's hilarious because, yeah, it is hilarious because it is in some ways such a quintessential Knizia type game, right? It's, uh, oh, here's a legendary epic by Reiner Knizia. It's a bidding game. You're having adventures, but it's all you're, it's all adventures through the lens of your you're making bids and uh, bids not to be the hero. No bids not to slay the dragon or the sea hag, but to be Beowulf's best bud, to be the best like posse partner buddy entourage suck up you can be yours wingman is yours you are not the hero you're the hero's wingman and you're just kind of along for the ride which i thought was a curious uh it is i mean it's a beowulf theme but it's more like a wikipedia article about beowulf and you're moving from sentence to sentence that's great yeah, it's, it's like good. a film strip yeah, yeah. 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 it's like yeah. 
yeah. bid to see if you got swords. Yeah. <laughs> and then and then the sea hag attacked. Next slide. Ping. Well, the, I want to say that I, I just I pulled up my phone because I wanted to see um, what Beowulf's rating was on Board Game Geek. Because you know everybody everybody here understands the seven to nine scale, and that anything under seven is a bad game according to the people on board game geek and beowulf is a stunning 6.4 so people don't like beowulf and i i was telling the guys here earlier that um you know beowulf is a game where um the uh the buzz about beowulf i remember when it came out i'm gonna i'm gonna pick up the box here so and i'm gonna figure out when it came out i should have just looked at the board game geek uh article uh, that you was, literally just had in your just hand. had in my hand but of yeah. course i'm stupid so i i um I found that um, this doesn't have a... It was like 2,000. Mind you, the cover of this game is Beowulf just getting lit up by a dragon yeah. and like flames curling around the shield. Like and, It's pretty hardcore. It's all, of the excitement, it's, it's all of the excitement of, a, of a, a, a Game of Thrones collecting card game. It's like, oh, here's a theme, and you get to match sets. You've got three... So... But Time. here was the thing, though. Even by the lights of... So there's a couple things that... 2005. So I began, to, like, I began to figure out what Bruce was doing immediately. Like once I realized... That, like, you see this long S track of like very old school American family board game, by the way. Just this yeah. long, snaky S track of the counter's going to move through this fucking course and you're going to do all these events and resolve them. But all these auctions... The game follows a set path. You're going to go through the same auctions. Mm-hmm. Um, and the auctions are going to call for the same resources. In no, the... some are going to call for wit, which is a fox. And some of them are going to call for fighting, which is swords. But Axis. And the, the courage, which is But the sea hag is, is always fist. going to call for the same resources. Like, of that course, but that's yeah. what you have to do to defeat a sea hag. You don't have right? to be witty to defeat a sea hag. You yeah. have to sail to store and then hit her with axes. There you go. As it was. I, I find it... Annoying, they call Grendel's mother the sea hag, but that's just me. Uh, but the fact is, you're going to go through these things in this order. Each of these challenges has a prescribed, like these are the resources you're going to need, they're going to unfold in this order. And so, as I'm sitting there playing it, I realize that, oh, the second time I played this game, I play it very differently because basically I know like what I'm building toward in the end game. And by the third or fourth time I play this game, I am pretty sure I would just be on autopilot and just basically right. you- like. You, yeah. you know what the best prizes are because yeah. there's a variable number of prizes. You know what you need at the end versus what you need at the beginning, which are different. Because yeah. in the beginning, there's a lot more carousing. At the end, there's a lot more fighting. And you yeah, can shit play gets real that. midway through. Right. Yeah. Um, well, remember but, that this is this is sorry. No, 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 that's fine. I just want to say that the, the um, this is game is Canizia's second epic. Uh, epic fantasy or epic legend interpretation after the 2000s Lord of the Rings cooperative game, which also had some, uh, shall we say, controversial reaction um, because that was basically a a set collection sort of card play through, once again, these little tracks, and uh, some people really liked it and some people hated it. Uh, and so this is, I mean, when, when Beowulf came out, there was a lot of, lot of, uh, anticipation about, you know, the great Reinhard Knizia is going to interpret Beowulf in game form. And then people got it and were like, oh, so I'm like Beowulf's bro. Why right. do you think people reacted differently to like 
because the Lord of the Rings game was very popular. Broke out like very that pop- was a game that I saw people who were not like serious tabletop players that broke out because and- it's Lord of the Rings number one. Uh, it came out in two thousand, which I think is basically right when the movies were uh, in. I think two thousand one was the. I, I can't remember. What the what the movie, yeah? I mean, two thousand one was the first movie. First one, so it was it was they were Peter Jackson was 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 uh, you know known to be making Lord of the Rings, and it was sort of and and people got involved, and then with you know with the with the theme, and um, and the uh, then I think after that, uh, two thousand two was was the confrontation, um, but. You know what, Lord of the Rings, the co- the cooperative board game is rated on Board Game Geek. Six point eight. Okay. There's a lot of people. There are a lot of people that don't like uh, Lord of the Rings, the cooperative board game, who felt it was just a bunch of pe- pointless uh, hidden information that didn't need to be hidden, you know, yeah. between the players um, who um, who uh, were playing just this weird card collection game to get past these things. Um, but yeah, I, I I think it. I think that game. I don't think hardcore board gamers like that at all, but I think a lot of more casual board gamers uh, liked it in the same way that, uh, I mean, Takedo, for example, that's an, a nice casual set collection game that I think uh, sort of ev- evolved the, if evolved can be a transitive verb, the, um, the uh, mechanics of Lord of the Rings uh, cooperative board game and made it even more sort of, pretty and 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 set collecty and and not i mean it's a competitive game but it's 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 almost it's a feel it's almost a solitary game when you play with other people um it was a diff- also a different board game time and space i think that would be i think people would have a lot more uh i think people would be even harsher on it today i don't know that's a good question I, that's that's all speculative i have no data for any of that but i just remember going through this because i remember i playing playing games I was really involved in the euro games uh at that time because um well because wargaming was still kind of having a hard time it was not broken out of its early 90s malaise it was the 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 sort of it wasn't until i think the later 2000s that board wargaming really kind of resurged with as gmt became more more successful um but i was really paying attention to the euro scene at that time and i was playing stuff like you know Kalis and and um and uh, the, the, the market really rewarded very computational games. Um, so I'm, I'm not surprised that hardcore board gamers didn't really like Lord of the Rings, uh, the cooperative board game, and, they, uh, and casual gamers did. Um, yeah. Casual gamers still not going to like Tigers. I mean, Tigers and Euphrates is the quintessential Euro. I mean, that, like I said, that was the number one of Board Game Geek for some period of time. I just never felt like Beowulf left me with interesting dilemmas. Like, in the way that, like, with Ra, I was constantly calculating what yeah. people were going to do, what I wanted to do. Uh, with modern art, it's all, like, what's, what's the market here? Like, what, what, what am I trying to push? With Beowulf, here's the other part. There was so much randomization right. with in the, the way mechanic. it worked. Yeah. yeah, like to me, it just felt like one when I had cleared it. Like it was asking very straightforward questions of: Do you have this resource? Spend it, dumbass. Right. Or you didn't have that resource, and then it was like, 
want to take a low probability draw off this deck. And that was basically the entire game, at least in, in, yeah. in my experience. Well, I think, they, I think there was some, they were, what they're, he was try, going for was that you would have these interesting decisions about, you know, you get to the things, do I take the cards? Do I take the, you know, the, the healing? Do I take the gold? Do I take the thing? Yeah, you're, you're, yeah, you're winning the chance to pick a reward. Yeah, uh, and, and then there's the recovery phase where everybody gets to make the same choices, but based on people having different game states or like different hands in their cards, oh, I'm going to take cards this time, or I'm going to, but I don't, I think just like you said, um, the fact that it, the fact that it sticks so closely to historical fact in which risk was something that ancient Vikings really had to do. And, 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 and you know, if you didn't risk, then you're not, this is historically an accurate game. Um, but risk is very chancy. So I think you can put that all in a very risk is very defensible, you know, uh, you know, I think a defensible uh, academic sort of uh, theory. I, th- I think you could really defend Beowulf from an academic standpoint. But oh, that's where you were going game. with this. Yeah, I got I mean, it. No. I, okay. I, 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 I want to put a risk is very chancy yep. on, a, on a sampler because that's just, you sell three, MA, be the, uh, three MA shirts. We risk have a byline on all the episodes when you put them up, or not the byline, the, uh, yeah. the little the subtitle. Tagline, yeah. yeah, that's that's kind of... Yeah, but, and, and that I think was the thing that really damned it for me. I don't even necessarily mind the idea of a Beowulf adventure being told through the lens of... His brosifs like bidding for favor and like seeing who's going to contribute, but the the assets with which I like there was no interesting asset generation or collection, and that was the, that was the problem. Yeah. If there is no interesting way to gather assets to spend, then you are constantly not actually you don't have enough assets where you have much of a meaningful choice. You either have money for something or you don't. It becomes as interesting as a trip to a store where you can't afford most of the things and You're just drawing cards from a deck. Yeah. And either you're saving resources for a better reward yeah. two turns down the line or you're spending them now. Right, and that's, and that's the other thing. That's is it. You're looking at that, oh, here's what, the, here's what the auction is going to be in like three spaces. But what isn't interesting is if Troy wins this bid... There is one, usually there's one clearly best thing yeah. on offer. Sometimes, there's a, sometimes there is a slightly interesting choice between like, eh, do I want this more straightforward reward or do I, want, do I want this like power up that could be useful later? But for the most part, in the sort of like post-bid resolution phase when the auction is over, there's the thing that's clearly good, right. there's the thing that's fine, and then there's two things that are probably actively Mm-hmm. Oh, you just want it. You need to win. You need to win the auction. Yeah, but I mean, I, I think the game could have benefited from a paper doll inventory, um, but also, um, I think that uh, you know the, the, the political uh, reality has changed as such that we're getting more interested in the stories of people who have been overlooked in history. You know, a lot of uh, you know the New York Times is running obituaries of people who died in the 1800s who may have been you know overlooked because they were minorities or they were women and i think that we can do the same thing for uh, people in ancient uh, ancient danish uh, legends i mean i think that that's i think i i really feel that the social justice of this game is overlooked okay so you think it's just it's of past due revisionism yes i think that we need to i need to we we need to pay some due to will the, to someone the, uh, please think of the bro of the who was just adjacent carl the carl yeah. Of oh, the armsman. The 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 the, the Geeting uh, um uh whatever you call it, conscripts. Yeah. Geet Geet's well, I don't Geet. know, there was a king, they all ate shit. Yeah. Like that was cool, it didn't yeah. go well. Like Beowulf showed up and didn't things didn't work out for that kingdom. 
Um, What's interesting to me, and the reason I got this stack yeah. over here, was looking at the dates because yep. you yep. brought that up yep. in my mind. You said Beowulf, Beowulf was 2005? Yeah, Raw's 1999. Okay, well then I'm looking at the print date for this one. So that was 99, Lost Cities was 99, and Lord of the Rings was either 2000 or 2001. 2002, I think. 2001. Huh? But, so the, these three are all of a kind, I think, of a time in, in, in Reiner Knizia's career yeah well they're, and, and, they're they're products of the time and board gaming now you will note that all of all three of those games have gone through multiple multiple editions okay. there's i think there's only one edition of beowulf i could be wrong but i doubt it there i looked it up there's a there's another beowulf game called beowulf the movie which is inspired by the movie and also inspired by beowulf the game and it's kind of a, i've according to the wikipedia article it's a modified version of the beowulf the legend game though the way they describe it it sounds very very different so I'm not sure if that counts as a reprint so or reimagining no, or it's, whatever. If it's, if it's, is it designed by Reiner Knizia? I didn't read the entire okay, so it, 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 it says that they're related somehow, though to me it looks very different. I am almost certain, my friends, that uh, Beowulf, that? Beowulf the, the Legend is the, only, is one. the yeah. only version of that freaking game that uh, has yeah, so ever... The way, the way that they just, the Wikipedia article described it, it didn't sound at all like Beowulf the Legend. But at least it had Angelina Jolie, I guess. That I mean, that's I think that's reasonable. Um, the uh, Beowulf, the um, Beowulf, the legend, according to this publisher. Oh no, okay, I'm sorry. What? No, wait. Fan- Fancy Flight Cosmos, sophisticated games. Uh, this got reprinted. I, I'd be I'd be shocked if this got reprinted. But uh, if there's Maybe someone different. took the first printing. I think, I think that no. I think these. I think what happened was this is a Fantasy Flight. There may have been different publish. Yes, I see. It's Fantasy Flight. I think there are different publishers in different regions. So like, there's. I think that uh, Fantasy Flight was involved in the American publication, and then uh, Cosmos has got to be the German and uh, Editrice Giochi. Yeah, that's the Italian. So these are all. I think these are all publishers for different uh, different regions. Um, but I can't imagine that they redid a, re- a Beowulf because I don't think it sold very well uh, once people learned what was going on. All right. Well, I think um, it was. I, I think it was a useful exercise insofar as it actually made me understand what the fuss is about with Reiner Knizia as opposed to the way I've tended to encounter these games before, which is usually as warm-up games, people tend to bust them out as like, hey, let's just do a quick bidding game yeah. and then like just cast it aside. Uh, and so seeing sort of a group of them all in one sort of extended setting was really interesting, but it did highlight both why he's so highly regarded as a designer and also the ways in which he sort of inclines towards self-parody in places mm-hmm. when uh, he perhaps doesn't have the bit quite between his teeth, uh, you know. Well, no one made him do a Beowulf game. <laughs> I'm pretty sure that was the conditions of his work release. <laughs> I mean, but I, I would play Raw. I mean, Raw, yeah, Raw's a great warm-up game, but it's also a game I'd play, like, all afternoon. Yeah, I would play that right now. I would play Modern Art. Yeah. Uh, in Unfortunately, art. you're not going to be able to because you were going to probably play... Um, we're probably going to play either uh, Candyland Zombie Legacy mm-hmm. or uh, Churchill. Okay, well, uh, I'm voting for Candyland, but I feel like I'm going to get outvoted. Yeah. Uh, so we will be playing more games this weekend and recording more on them, but that will do it for uh, this edition of Three Moves Ahead. We'll be back next time with more strategy discussion. 
This episode is produced uh, by... Probably by me. Probably by Michael Hermes. Yeah, probably uh, by probably me this next, time. Probably in the next uh, you know, couple days. Yeah, yeah. Uh, hopefully, hopefully the yeah. audio is all right. Oh, everything um, worked out pretty well. I think we actually got to get a picture of this. At this least is a nice setup. He can't blame. I know. I can't blame himself. it. I can't blame the site crew. And know? Troy wasn't able to play a clicker during the not during this one time, time were you able to play a clicker game the whole show. Uh, uh, it warms my heart. The show is hosted on the Adlethums Network. You can learn more about the show and discuss this episode with our community at 3movesahead.net or follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash 3MA. Finally, 3movesahead is supported by listeners just like you on Patreon. You can learn more at patreon.com slash 3MA. Uh, that also has further information about our super secret Discord server where we occasionally talk about strategy games. Uh, we'll be back next time with another episode of 3movesahead. Until then, for Troy, for Bruce, for Michael, this is Rob Zachney saying goodnight. night.